Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Tecco, and this is The Heart of Healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground, moving the needle in public health and medicine. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rock Health Summit 2021 virtual series. My name is Hallie Tecco, and today I'm wearing my interviewer hat as we're recording this in partnership with my new podcast, The Heart of Healthcare. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people, and I just love getting the opportunity to interview amazing leaders like my guests today. Dr. Nzinga Harrison is a well-respected physician and educator and the co-founder and chief medical officer of Eleanor Health, which is an innovative company building mental health medical homes for individuals affected by opioid and other substance use disorders. She is also the co-founder and vice chair of the board for the nonprofit Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform, where she leads advocacy at the intersection of health and criminal justice. She earned her bachelor's degree from Howard University, completed medical school at the University of Pennsylvania, and completed general psychiatry residency at Emory. She is board certified in both adult general psychiatry and addiction medicine and has spent her career treating individuals with serious persistent mental illness and addictive diseases and advocating for stigma reduction, justice, and equity in healthcare. Currently, she holds adjunct faculty appointments at the Morehouse School of Medicine and is the campaign psychiatrist for Let's Get Mentally Fit, a public education and stigma reduction campaign. Welcome to the Heart of Healthcare and the Rock Health Summit, Dr. Harrison. Thank you, Hallie. Thank you for that awesome introduction. Well, let's start from the beginning. Um, Tell us about your career and maybe what's not on this very impressive resume and really what led you to pursue this work. Ooh, I'll say what's not on that, thank you for calling it very impressive resume, is that I am a wife and mom. So I have two teenage boys, 14 and 16. And I'll say one of the most important things my psychiatric training gave me, I think it was the ability to understand the importance of um, intentional social, emotional safety and development. Um, And I think that has hopefully made me a more effective mom for my kiddos. Uh, thinking about the way I got into practicing medicine, psychiatry and addiction medicine specifically, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor from like five or six years old. And wow. the concept of doctor that I had at that time was pediatrician. I didn't have doctors in my family. And so that was the type of doctor that I knew. Um, and so I intended to be a pediatrician. And then As I learned more about the human body and different specialties, I thought I would be a surgeon because surgery is amazing. Uh, But when I got to medical school and I did my psychiatry rotation, 
then psychiatry was the dress that fit me for a few reasons. Um, one, I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana in the 80s. Um, and my father was commander of the local Black Panther militia. My mother was a public school teacher who eventually rose up the ranks to be an administrator in the public school system. And so advocacy um, and activism was baked in my bones, raised in my DNA. And when I did my psychiatry rotation, I realized just how mistreated people with mental health disorders and definitely with substance use disorders were by the healthcare system. And then I also was learning the biology of behavior and decision-making and choice, which was not something I had ever been exposed to. And so the biology and science of that, along with the activism um, against the marginalization that I saw for people experiencing those conditions, made it the perfect fit. And that has been my career ever since. Wow. So how big is the problem of substance abuse and addiction in the U.S., and how much of it really is being tackled by the medical community versus the social justice community, nonprofits, community workers, et cetera? Yeah, it's a great question, and I'm going to take just one opportunity. I hope it's okay to do a language tweak. Um, oh, substance yes, abuse has been a term. Yeah, substance abuse has been a term but it carries the stigma that we put on people who are suffering um, with substance use disorders or people who use drugs. And so abuse is a crime, right? And abuse comes with negative implications and judgment about choices and morality. And so we try to be very intentional about our language to move from substance abuse to substance use disorder. I, I make the joke like we wouldn't call it uh, kidney abuse for diabetes, even though diabetes, the illness most certainly is abusive yeah. uh, to the kidneys. But substance use disorder, people who use drugs, addiction, it is the rule rather than the exception. We're raised with this concept, at least in this country, kind of culturally, that it is those people that are addicted to drugs who, you know, have weak self-will or make bad choices or not good people. When in reality, substances are such a critical part of our culture in this country. I mean, literally, from the time you pop out of the womb, we're like, just wait till you're 21. You can get wasted, right? Like everything you see on TV, you can't go in any store of any type without there being liquor there and cigarettes behind the counter. And so the concept of addiction being uh, confined to a narrow group is one that I try to refute. And so if we think about the definition of addiction as continuing to engage in some behavior that's bringing negative consequences that outweigh positive consequences, mm -hmm. we all have that experience. We all have that experience, whether it's, you know, watching too much TV, working too much, exercising too much, drinking too much, using heroin, the neurobiological systems are the same. Um, but for people with substance order 20 million of us, chocolate, totally. Chocolate yes. actually <laughs> neurobiologically increasing serotonin, treating depression and anxiety. I'll go on and on. Um, but in terms of who's tackling the problem, disproportionately people who use drugs are in jail and prison and homeless 
And I don't think those systems are tackling the problem. I think the structures that we have are actually driving the problem Mm. uh, because what we would want is that people with substance use disorders, other medical conditions are diverted to public health systems and healthcare systems with healthcare being broad, very broadly defined, right? Not just the doctor's office, not just a five-day detox, not just a 30-day rehab, but all of those Mm -hmm. social drivers of health and supports that wrap around our ability to make different choices about our behavior. So right now, if you're looking for help for a substance use disorder, you can access healthcare. You can access the recovery community directly through support systems. But a lot of people are getting caught up in criminal legal system um, and helplessness. So when does something cross over? What's the difference between a habit and an addiction? Is it if it's bad for you, it's an addiction? If it's, you know, benign, then it's a habit? Or is there some definition that you can explain to us? Yeah, that's a great question. And so we can use that wide definition of addiction, which is continued use despite negative consequences. What's really important about human behavior is that we don't do anything that is not bringing us benefit. So if there's a behavior that purely only has negative consequences and no benefit, neurobiologically, we're not wired to continue that behavior. Mm. And so it comes it crosses the line from habit. Yes, habits can be positive or negative, but from habit to addiction, when the negative consequences outweigh the positive consequences. And so you can think of it, if we take work, we have lots of positive reinforcement around people who actually work themselves to illness culturally. But if you're working yourself to illness, whether that's physically or psychologically, and still compulsively, you're not able to turn down the amount of work that you're doing, that will fall into this definition of addiction because you have positive benefits, right? You're getting paid, you're getting accolades. People look at you like, wow, you can work harder than anyone else I knew. But you're also not- There's a positive cycle. Your marriage is suffering. Your kids don't know you. You're having self-esteem difficulties, right? So when those start to outweigh, And still compulsively, you have to engage in that same amount and type of work that would qualify. And so you can take that concept and apply it to substances. Interesting. So is there such thing as an addictive personality? Uh, Yes, and all humans have it. So the addictive personality is the one that continues to engage in behaviors that bring positive benefit, even though they have negative consequences. That's all of us. That is neurobiologically how the brain functions. Okay. I think what people mean to say when they say addictive personality, what they're actually talking about is the biological, psychological, social, cultural predisposition to develop an addiction. And so if we look at addiction as a chronic medical condition, which it is, like diabetes, high blood pressure, asthma, there's this concept of a heritability coefficient. And that means what percent of your risk for developing that illness is coded in your DNA the day you're born. Mm -hmm. And so if we look at the heritability coefficient for addiction, it's between 40 and 60%. High blood pressure, 
between 40 and 60 percent. Diabetes type 2, between 50 and 70 percent. Mm-hmm. Asthma, between 35 and 50 percent. And so addiction has the same basically genetic risk. So when you have a person lay on top of that genetic risk, psychosocial variables that drive addiction. So adverse early childhood experiences, abuse, neglect, poverty, instability, losing a parent to the legal system, parents divorcing, um, all of these sorts of ACEs, then what you have is a person who is more vulnerable to get addicted to whatever series of behaviors or substances that they're exposed to. And people call it addictive personality which puts the entire onus on that person, right? Like just be a different person and you wouldn't have addiction when it's actually genetic vulnerability and psychosocial Mm -hmm. impact driving the the risk for developing addiction to all sorts of things. So what are some behavioral addictions that most people don't think about? You've mentioned work, (laughs) sitting on the sofa, chocolate. What are some other ones that you see in your practice? Um, that people don't really think about it as an addiction. Yeah, definitely technology. So these smartphones, um, social media specifically, I have so many people that social media is bringing so much distress and dysfunction, but the compulsive use of social media and in all of our defense, there are literally organizational psychologists that all of these tech businesses that are designing this technology to make us compulsively use it, right? Like they understand yeah. the biology and they're designing to that biology. Um, social media, video games for sure. Um, yeah. Exercise. And so it can be very difficult for people to see that line between the benefits that exercise is bringing. And we give so much positivity for exercise, but there's a point at which your body physically starts to have negative consequences. I definitely see a lot of people. Yep. I see a lot of people cross that line. Work. I don't know if I say it work first, but I'm talking to myself. So I'll say work. Do you live in San Francisco? In the middle and the end. I live in Atlanta. Okay. Go say San Francisco. I mean, I San Francisco have a work addiction epidemic. I had a work addiction when I lived there and I had to leave to get out of that work addiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's common, right? Because the way our brains learn, we're constantly associating this plus this. You don't even necessarily know that your brain made that association, but I would bet even if you just took a vacation to San Francisco, you would develop a sort of craving for the work that Mm. you were doing at that time because your brain has physiologically made that association. So going to the social media, video games, everything online. So you and I grew up in a generation where, you know, maybe there was one computer in the household and you were allowed to use it for an hour after school. But children now are so immersed online. Do you worry that we're raising a generation that has, that becomes hooked and addicted on social media, their phones for life, that's just going to be a completely different generation because of it? I don't worry about it from that perspective because every generation is better than the last generation and will bring new opportunity and horizon in a new world, right? Like I kind of like see hope in the future and the next generation Mm -hmm. is always the future. That said, yes, we have to be 
super intentional. Our kids these days connect in ways that we didn't connect. We have to be able to value those connections, but I would like to see us pouring intention into true, compassionate, meaningful social connection through the use of technology. And I think that's a bit of where we're struggling with social media for our kids now. I don't, I didn't give my teenagers cell phones until they were teenagers, 13. Mm-hmm. But they had iPads before, and I definitely used iPads as a surrogate parent more than once. But I think if During you can COVID, so many parents that, had no choice. Oh, yeah. Totally. You had to. I mean, it was either like, do we want these kids to stay alive because I'm at risk for killing one of these kids in the house before <laughs> I so like, do I want like also, an iPad or do we want no kids? Yeah. yeah. I mean, do I, do you want to keep your job and keep working and keep food on the table? Yeah. There's just a lot of, I mean, that, right. Like, like there were a set of choices that had to be made. Yeah. Totally. Totally, sure. totally. So no judgment zone, but I think we do have to conceptualize a way that we're not letting technology supplant mm. in person social connection, because in-person social connection actually comes with pheromones. It actually comes with neurobiological changes that are good for health and help with resilience and protect us against illness, physical and mental, including substance use disorders. And so technology will not be able to account for that neurobiological part of being physically with each other. Uh, but I don't I don't look at it as a doomsday scenario. I think we just have to empower ourselves with the education. And as humans, we're always striving for balance. We just have to be aware of how critical that balance really is. Sure. And what about the recent talk around Instagram and how internally they knew that um, Instagram was causing problems specifically for teenage girls? Yeah, I mean... That doesn't surprise me because a la Philip Morris knew that cigarettes were causing cancer, right? And so these corporations are not formed to make us healthy and protect us. These corporations are formed to make money and drive profit by often any means necessary. And so I think we can't look to those structures to be responsible for our compassion, connection, health and um, uh, protection and resilience. And so we can still use those tools, but we have to be one outside of technology, making sure that we're stacking our children with positive childhood experiences as much as we can and minimizing adverse childhood experiences, raising them with mindfulness, and compassion and self-agency and a sense of value, teaching them then the risks of an Instagram, right? Because Instagram drives low self-esteem because if you don't get enough likes, then you're useless. And then people drop into your comments and they say really ugly things about you and you internalize them. But if we psychosocially, we're doing a better job at having nourishing, nurturing environments for our adolescents, we could empower them with education and understanding 
about social media and they would be able to use it more safely. And then we're not relying on Instagram to create safety for our kids because I don't think we'll ever be able to rely on any massive corporation for that. That's not their purpose. We'll be right back after the break. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. So changing gears a little bit, I read that somewhere between 40 and 60% of individuals receiving treatment for substance use disorder will relapse. Why is treatment so ineffective? Oh, I love this question. So I'm (laughs) going to start with treatment is so ineffective. Treatment for addiction is so ineffective for the same reasons that treatment for diabetes is so ineffective is so ineffective for the same reasons that treatment for asthma is so ineffective. And so I'm going to drop some statistics. This is from a McClellan study that really is one of the sentinels that helped us in medicine start to truly understand and have data behind substance use disorders as chronic medical conditions. And it looked at um, a population of people who had been hospitalized, so received inpatient treatment for addiction or asthma or diabetes or high blood pressure. And one year after they were discharged from that inpatient treatment, were they still following medication recommendations? Were they still following lifestyle recommendations? And had their illness relapsed? So had the symptoms of their illness recurred, whether that was diabetes, high blood pressure, asthma, or addiction? You may predict what I'm going to say next. Addiction? Don't tell me it's the best. You got it. It's either tied or it's the best. So 40% of people were following recommendations a year later compared to, so the worst was actually asthma, but all of them fell between 30 and 60% for following recommendations. And following medication recommendations was more often than following lifestyle recommendations. Like as humans, to change our lifestyle. When yeah. you look at the relapse rates at one year, the relapse rates for addiction, diabetes, high blood pressure, asthma, all between 40 to 60%. Wow. Addiction on the lower end, those others on the higher end. And so this is the stigma that we have. <clears throat> this is the stigma we have that treatment for addiction doesn't work. And it's true, 40 to 60% relapse is terrible. Yeah. yeah. But we don't say... Why is diabetes relapsing so much? Because we don't have the stigma against why is asthma relapsing so much? Because we don't have the stigma against it. We should be asking that question, which is why I'm glad you asked it. So the answer to why is because we're not practicing in the evidence base. 
So you would never have a person with diabetes and they only get diet and exercise and never offered insulin, even though their blood sugar is in the 400s. Medical establishment would not accept it, but we accept that for substance use disorders. On the other side, you wouldn't have a person with diabetes with a blood sugar of 600 and they only give them medication and never give education about diet and exercise. But we do that in addiction, right? We have so many programs pop that are like, we only do medication. We only do 12 steps. We only do group therapy. We don't do medication. And then we wonder why our outcomes are terrible. Also, our environment exerts so much pressure on our health. So remember that heritability coefficient was 40 to 60%. That means 60 to 40% of your risk of developing an addiction. And that was about the same across blood pressure, diabetes, asthma. So I can be talking about all these illnesses at once for developing it or for it getting worse is environmental. And so what are the stressors? Mm -hmm. What are the instabilities? What are the support systems that the healthcare system is only recently taking responsibility for addressing as part of health, even though they're the bigger part of the pie? Genetics is the yeah. smaller part of the pie. So it doesn't work because our healthcare system doesn't work. And it also doesn't work for diabetes, asthma, and high blood pressure either. Okay, so now would be a great time to tell us about what you're doing at Eleanor Health. Yes. So I'm co-founder and chief medical officer of Eleanor Health. And our approach to uh, addiction and substance use disorders is that chronic medical condition approach. So if we understand that all chronic medical illnesses, when a person is sick, they need compassion, we lead with compassion. That is unfortunately not the standard experience in substance use disorder care where you're often met with make better choices, you very punitive, you don't have a say, no autonomy. And so we lead with compassion and autonomy, but we also seek to take care of the entire person longitudinally. And so most folks' concept of addiction treatment is either a five-day detox, and then you should just be able to do it from there, or a 30-day, $30,000 residential rehab stay, and you should just be able to say no after that. But I ask people to think about diabetes again. If you go to the hospital with diabetic coma and go in the ICU, you have a five-day hospital stay. That's the equivalent of detox. And then maybe maybe three days in the ICU and then maybe another week in the hospital. That's the equivalent of that 30 days of rehab. Do we discharge that person with no medication, no education on diet and exercise, no social support, not connected to any medical treatment provider and say, into the same environment with the same food and donut shop on the corner that they came from and say, keep your blood sugar down. No, hopefully not. That doesn't make (laughs) sense. That doesn't make any sense. We connect them with a primary care doctor who continues to evaluate them over time, make adjustments as needed, see them frequently when they need to be seen, frequently space it out when they don't. But a continuous thread of support because diabetes is a relapsing, remitting condition. And so at Eleanor Health, that's how we approach the treatment of substance use disorders rapid access 
biopsychosocial, cultural, political approach. So what is going on in your life? What is your genetic load? What are your other physical health conditions? What are your other mental health conditions? What is your support system? What are those social drivers of health that are unstable? Peers, helping with support system. Care coordinators, helping with social drivers of health. Psychiatrists and therapists, helping with other mental health conditions. Group therapy, individual therapy, family therapy, wrapping around a support system. Physical health conditions, nurse care manager team, right? Like what is the collection of needs that are driving your substance use disorder and stay with us. When you need frequent care, we'll give it frequently. When you're more stable and you just need to check in every three, six months, we're proactively helping you realize when your risk is going up and checking in with you. And so it's that longitudinal thread concept clinically, how we're approaching it at Eleanor. And then I know I've been talking forever, but I have to say, The way we're changing the paradigm is that healthcare overwhelmingly is paid for fee for service. You see the doctor, they drop a claim to your insurance. If you're lucky to have insurance, insurance gets a bill, you get a bill. Nobody being held accountable to if you're actually getting better, right? And so, so many healthcare systems can drive financial sustainability just by giving quantity of care whether people are getting better or not. And so our business thesis at Eleanor and how we're changing the industry is that we put our income at risk for outcomes. So pay us, help us identify this population. We will do proactive outreach and engagement, remove stigma, bring people in, follow them and care coordinate and provide care over time. And if they're getting better, we want a bonus. Mm. And if they're getting worse, we'll give some of our money back. And yeah. so that incentivizes and, us to focus on yeah. clinical improvement rather than just volume. Yeah, when I wanna hear about your outcomes to date, but before that, can you share a little bit more about how much of the program is in-person versus how much you're really digitizing and bringing to mobile? Yeah, definitely. So we have defined ourselves and built ourselves to be multimodal. Um, Before COVID, we were doing about 10% of our services virtually and about 90% in person. Because we already had that infrastructure built when the country shut down for COVID, literally like we had no break in services over a two week period, that pendulum swung to about 90% virtual, 10% in person and using technology to make sure we're reaching access to those parts of the states we're in that otherwise wouldn't have access. That has been just a beautiful, beautiful strategy to make sure we kept people connected because it also allowed us uh, using technology to increase the number of touch points and connections with people that otherwise driving into a clinic could um, make impossible. Uh, We are seeing uh, now more in-person, like people are craving, just like I was saying before with social media, Literally, you share hormones that change your neurobiology when you're mm-hmm. in the same physical space. That's important for you. They miss you. So we're seeing yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're seeing a lot of our community members, definitely those who were in person first coming back, even those who have been purely virtually with us wanting to come in to that physical space. They don't know that it's to share the pheromones, but that's what it's for. <laughs> um, and so we are literally able to meet 
our, we call them community members where they are. So if they want virtual, we do it virtually. If yeah. they want in-person, we do it in-person um, with access being the number one driver there. Okay, so outcomes. What sort of data do you have so far for the patients that you're serving? Yes, we are so data-driven and it's incredible. So I think it's important to say here this concept of harm reduction. So, so much of addiction and substance use disorder care has been pinned in. You have to be ready for complete abstinence from all drugs or else you actually cannot be in treatment. There are state licensing regulations that make this the case and that has been the culture of treatment. Which of course makes no sense because that's the same thing as saying to a person with diabetes, you have to get your blood sugar completely <laughs> controlled or within normal realm before we'll give you insulin and teach you about diet and exercise. It makes yeah. no sense, right? It rests in not understanding substance use disorders yeah. as chronic medical conditions. Harm reduction says at whatever point you're having symptoms, even if you're not setting a goal of complete abstinence, if you're using heroin four times a day, seven days a week, and we can help you reduce that to three times a week, we have reduced the harm of that heroin addiction. Sure. We have reduced the number of times you may die from an overdose from 28 to three. We will take this harm reduction. And so at Eleanor, we practice harm reduction and abstinence-based care based on the autonomy of the person in front of us. So you may come in and say, I want complete abstinence from opioids, but I'm going to continue to drink alcohol. In your traditional addiction treatment program, that is not an option. And so they just leave you unattached mm. and then you die in the street. Come to Eleanor. And so even though we're taking care of people at every phase of the illness during active use, early remission, sustained remission, periods of illness, relapse, when we look at access, we can get people into care same day, next day. When we wow. look at improvement in mental health scores using psychometrically validated scales, depression and anxiety, 70% of people in our population have an improvement in depression and anxiety in the first month that they're with us. Wow. And that persists over time, have a reduction in substance use, have an improvement in their social drivers of health. Our community member satisfaction, our NPS is in the 70s. Our team member satisfaction, NPS is in the 70s. And it's because we're leading with compassion, autonomy, yeah. evidence, and data. But also because we know one of the outcomes we get measured on when I said we put our fees at risk is a reduction in total cost of care. Mm -hmm. When a person is actively using and they're connected to us, when they need something, they will call us. When a person is actively using and they're not connected to us, they will go to the emergency room, right? And so just the fact that Wait, they called time. us instead of going to the emergency room reduces that total cost of care, improves their quality of yeah. life because who wants to spend all day and all night in the emergency room? And so we're seeing persistent beyond a year, 40 plus reduction in emergency department and inpatient utilization, just by keeping the connection with people, even though a significant portion of our population is still using, reducing harm. Yeah. So reducing harm, you're improving 
anxiety and depression, all while reducing healthcare costs. Isn't it a lovely like, story? Let's, yeah. All while, and this is the most important part of it, all while pouring into our community members' self-concept and self-value. Mm -hmm. If you read our reviews, and we have this really beautiful Slack channel at Eleanor Health called Member Stories, and you know our team uses that because the work can be hard. And it's definitely in a startup, like our volume of work is crazy. Uh, but we keep the members at the center, <laughs> yeah. at the center of our value set. And it is like, you see me as a human, you really cared. I've never had a doctor genuinely care about me the way my doctor at Eleanor has. Um, I mean, like, for example, yeah. we have services in Louisiana. Uh, and Louisiana is a new state for us, so it's relatively small. But when Hurricane Ida came, we had our centralized national access team call every single member in Louisiana, yeah. whether they had an appointment or not. If you had ever been connected to us in Louisiana, yeah. we called every single member and said, what can we do? Not do you need medication, not your appointments yeah. being rescheduled, not we just said what can sure. we do? And we were connecting people to the you yeah. know, emergency They're... responses and all of that. But they said, no place has ever just called me to just say, are you okay? What can we do? Improves outcomes. Just to feel cared for. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe no one else was checking in on them. It probably made a lot of people feel more loved and cared for. That's right. Yeah, that's right. How many states? And neurobiologically, uh, six. So we're oh, in North okay. Carolina, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Washington, Louisiana, Ohio. And Georgia? Not yet? We are not in Georgia, but if someone would like to talk to us about a population health model, we will be more than happy to enter into those conversations. Yeah. How, yeah, how, how do you guys plan to scale nationally? Find local individuals who can lead up um, for different geographies? Yeah, so uh, definitely we'll be going deep in the six states that we're already in. And then uh, we have a number of really beautiful partnerships uh, and always looking for more partnerships. But we are looking for value-based care and population health partnerships. And so we do not want to move into a new community and have to do fee-for-service because so much about fee-for-service, like there is no code to pay for calling everybody in Louisiana <laughs> just to say, are you okay? There's literally, the, there's no diagnosis CBT, yeah. there's no ICD-10, there's no procedure code. And so we have to have these value-based care population health reimbursement mechanisms so that we can deliver our whole person compassion autonomy harm reduction model. And so that's what it takes to get us to expand is a partnership where a payer agrees to take that leap with us um, yep. and then we scale it from there. Amazing. Well, can you tell us how people that are listening can follow your work and maybe maybe they want to be involved? Maybe they're from a payer or from another value-based care system? Yes. So um, I'll start with Eleanor. You can definitely find us at eleanorhealth.com. That's for people who are looking for partner. That's for people who are looking for support. Uh, we have 
free support groups that actually people from all around the world join virtually. So you can find that there also. Um, I want specifically to mention Eleanor Health Foundation, which is a completely separate organization from Eleanor Health, but who is doing beautiful work. Their mission is to reduce cost as a barrier um, to addiction treatment. And uh, you can go to eleanorhealthfoundation.org uh, to execute partners partnerships with that foundation, or if you know someone who is in need, that cost is presenting a barrier to their recovery in North Carolina specifically. Um, and then you can follow me on Twitter, N.A. Harrison, M.D. I'm also on LinkedIn. I think if you search Nzinga Harrison, I'll probably be the one that you find. But we would love to hear from people who want to work with us, payers who are interested in changing the way we treat people and the way we fund the treatment for people who use drugs um, and people who just identify with the mission and want to be part of spreading the word. Please all come. Yes. Um, <laughs> thank you. Well, your passion for this is palpable. We thank you for sharing your wisdom and your time today. And thank you for everyone tuning in. Uh, you can subscribe to The Heart of Healthcare wherever you listen to podcasts to hear other great speakers like Dr. Harrison. Thank you. Thank you, Hallie. Thank you for listening to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. If you liked today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare with Hallie Teco is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Holly Teco and Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seely and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seely. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com. <laughs>